Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. That's right, and I'd say we've made a habit of it. We sure have. Yeah, this is our 51st interview. Wow. 54, 50, I guess we've probably recorded 54 at this point. Yeah, we've we've done more stuff with the taste tests, etc. Yeah. But it's cool that we've been doing this almost a year. That's right. So the pod is about to turn one year old. Tim just turned 37 years old. That's right. Should Everything's turning. Pod bash. Pod bash. Get all the guests in one place. Coming right up. I would Location bet most TBD. of our guests know each other. Yeah, I think John Tight-knit Mannion community. would love to host a pod bash for us. At Elche Open Bar. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but... Did you have to open any gifts in front of people on your birthday? You know, my disdain for this particular practice. I think we share that disdain. Yeah. Uh, No, I do not enjoy opening gifts in front of people. So were you (laughs) blessed with not having to do it? I... Thankfully, I think I'm at an age where I don't receive a lot of gifts. Mm. Because I don't... I don't really like... I'm a very picky person. I don't like people picking things out for me. Um, Unless they're perishable. (laughs) Unless they're perishable or consumable. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I did not have to open gifts in front of me. There's no... This is a public service announcement. Don't make people open gifts in front of you. Absolutely. Nobody wants to do that. There's no right way to do it. There's no good reaction. There are many bad reactions, potentially. Mm-hmm. So people don't, getting hurt, feelings, yeah, et cetera. Don't even go down there. I 100% co-sign. <laughs> yeah. Now, if Ellie will listen to this, then we are gold. Does Ellie prefer to open a gift in front I of mean, somebody? I mean, definitely. There's like some, you know... She wants to like be a part of the whole experience. Hmm. It's pro- it's probably a very sweet, thoughtful thing with that's well intentioned. But it is. It, it's certainly well intentioned. It's just not my cup of tea. Shannon's weird gift quirk is that she never wants to wait or be surprised by a gift. Yeah, that's so a tough one. If like something, if I'm like, oh, you know, your Christmas gift came in the mail today. She's like, oh, can I open it? I'm like, yeah. well, Christmas is in two weeks. <laughs> yes. Are you are you sure? She's like, yeah, I'm sure. And then she'll just kind of sit down and open it. Yeah, it's, it's rough. Yeah. Um, anyways, <laughs> here's a gift for you, the listener. Yeah. What an is excellent, it? A solid interview? Yeah, an excellent conversation with Chris Dilatore. It is. This is a guest who's maybe a little bit outside the box as she's not a restaurateur um, or necessarily working in the hospitality industry right now, but she's worked a number of very interesting jobs all over the world in the hospitality world. But now she's in education. She works at the Academy for Global Citizenship, a very cool progressive school on the south side of Chicago, where she is the director of sustainability and wellness. So she's teaching kids about growing food, raising crops, raising animals, and doing it in a responsible way. So uh, hopefully you'll be a more informed consumer at the end of this interview. So please enjoy our conversation with Chris Delatore. All right, Chris, welcome in. First of all, let's talk about your current position. What, okay. tell us Tell us about your job. All right, so my current position is kind of this result of all the different things that I've ended up doing across food systems and restaurants. So there is this really special public charter school on the southwest side of Chicago that is in this transition phase. And I think over time, I've just learned like my professional sweet spot is as things are kind of growing, building kind of the jump off point. So the school has been operating for over a decade. It's a dual language school. So it's English and Spanish. 
Spanish, and they have this great mission that folds in environmental justice, international baccalaureate learning, which is really like experiential. It's a lot of hands-on, applicable, practical ways of tying classroom learning. And they are moving to this incredible new campus. It's six acres on the southwest side. They're implementing a two-acre production farm, learning gardens, some livestock, and the building is both energy and water net positive. Wow. So my position is a position that hopefully becomes pretty common across public schools, but specifically in the case of this school, as the director of sustainability and school food, I'm there to coach teachers on implementing a lot of these ideas and experiences into the classroom because it's not always obvious, right? Mm. It's like you can teach math a million ways and there are all of these things like manipulatives, but could a garden function in that way? Totally. So is this the central part of the curriculum? It is a central part of the curriculum and What makes it central is that environmental justice piece. So it could happen in a lot of different contexts, just even as part of experiential learning. There's a lot of like um, farm to school cafeteria programs that are popping up. You could weave it in in a lot of different ways. And what is the name of this school? Oh, it's Academy for Global Citizenship. Okay, cool. Yeah. It sounds utopic. How how novel is this concept? (laughs) And I guess where did, because uh, you, you mentioned it's been around for about a decade. Yeah. Um, was this one of the first in the country like this? There are models across the country. You see a lot of them on the coasts, on east, mm-hmm. west coast. There are very few that are public, and there are fewer that bring all of the ideas under one roof. Yeah. So um, there are really strong models kind of doing one of the things, but not really any that are putting them all together and not really in Chicago. And there's been this evolution in charter schools in particular that, you know, you're scaling it as like a for-profit entity. But really, the initial idea of charters was to pilot new ways of implementing learning in the classroom and feed that back to the broader district, right? So we're a small school. We're about 500 students. So we can apply things and we hire people into educator positions who are down to just try things out and that brings in like this really interesting mix of like veteran teachers who just want to have the kind of freedom that a charter school allows and then some newer teachers who want to see education happen differently yeah so it's a pretty special project so it's essentially a proof of concept it's like hey this is working here we can do some of these progressive ideas and and prove that it's feasible and in the hopes that other schools will adopt it yes and is the art do you find that schools are willing to adapt it or is there friction there? Oh yeah. I mean, change is hard, just like period. And so we're collecting data on everything and we spend a lot of time building partnerships because there's a trust piece there as well. And if we can kind of point to longstanding partners, if we can invite people in and create a really transparent model, we're seeing inroads happen not only in our region, but also across the country. So slowly but surely, and it happens really small and really incremental, but, um, it's happening. How did you get the first students or how did they get the first students 10 years ago? Oh, great question. To subscribe to this, you know, yeah. new way of thinking and learning. Well, the majority of our students come from within district. So there is a lottery system, but right now our facilities are like 
a repurposed barrel factory and like an old CPS school. So there's not the kind of glitz and glam that we're about to have with this kind of leveling up of the new campus. So most of the recruitment are really from kids in the area who, you know, it's geography, it's proximity. And then quite a few parents are like, oh, and this is amazing. My kid will speak Spanish. My kid's going to have organic served lunch and breakfast and it's free. My kid's going to go play outside a bunch of hours of the day and use that as part of their learning experience so it's you know people come around to it but it's not necessarily the thing that draws them in so far that's cool is it is on the southwest side you said where exactly or yeah, where's so the old you know it is um so we're split between two locations which is super fun in all the ways that it's really complicated <laughs> to run a garden program like on opposite sides of cicero so it's the cicero corridor just um south of 55 but north of midway okay cool yeah. um so not a particularly glamorous resource part of the city it's heavy industry low air quality and that's part of what makes the project so important. Has that been a challenge for growing things and all sorts of stuff like that? You know, we have to think a lot about um, food safety. Just in any case, you know, there are structures in place to send your produce from the garden into the school cafeteria. There are checks and balances for that. But it's something we do have to be mindful of, like a lot of soil testing and you know, thinking about how to partner with organizations that can green our part of city, our part of the city. So we have a really low um, urban canopy. So there's not a density of trees in the way that you see in other parts of the city. So we have a campus we're inviting organizations on. We have kids plant trees and community members. So yeah, it's... How do you, I mean, this could be a silly question, but how do you like cleanse soil or get it to a, mm. a place where you can grow things safely in it if it is contaminated or what I mean. Yeah. So the short answer is like in the city, you don't mess with it. You just cap it. Like it's, you know, the degree of history that you'd have to go through of like, what was there? What's there now? <laughs> How long is it going to take? You know, you could, if you have the time and the sort of level of investment in that property, like we don't own the properties that we're on. So the remediation process is like lengthy and or expensive. Could you hypothetically, you know, plant a bunch of sunflowers to draw toxins out of the soil or comfrey is a really popular one. You totally could, and it would take a few seasons, but you'd get there. For us, we just cap it. We cap it and we bring in like high quality growing compost. So what do you use to cap it? There are, again, a lot of different versions, some like very accessible and affordable things that people could do in their backyards in the city. You can just rip up cardboard and lay it down as a protective barrier and then give yourself, you know, a couple inches of topsoil to plant in. Okay. So Yeah, I guess what's the ideal? What are you covering that with? A couple inches does it? Yeah, a couple inches okay. does it. So the idea is that you really don't want your root system to break down and start pulling up yeah the toxic Mm -hmm. soil exactly and which all of that concentrates particularly in like fruiting crops Hmm. so if it's leafy greens you're ingesting less of that but if it's a fruiting crop like peppers and tomatoes and the things that people get really crazy about then (laughs) it really is a problem that's interesting i didn't know that sunflowers were like i didn't i was antioxidants yeah sunflowers fungi you know these are all um Tim's a big fun guy guy. 
my fun yeah, guy. I've heard, in I've heard the jokes. Yeah. yeah. The jokes. <laughs> None of them have landed Different. yet, but Danny's still going for <laughs> no, it. No, I'm just more saying that you're really into <laughs> mushrooms and stuff. I, me and Ronnie Kaplan, we're going to save the world with <laughs> mushrooms. Um, all right, Chris, let's take a step back and talk about, because we went to college together, undergrad. Mm-hmm. What? And then, yeah. <laughs> and, like every third and guest. The, and then Chris yeah. went on to achieve wonderful things. So let's talk a little bit about your education and how you got to where you're at now um, with a wealth of knowledge. Oh, gosh. Well, a wealth of experience. The knowledge drawn is like debatable, I guess. But um, you sound pretty knowledgeable yeah, you so know, far. You know your shit. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Um, so you know, I had a really unconventional trajectory, and most of it has been hands-on learning. So you know, sort of the more like institutional fancy part comes much later. But right after college, I I took a job abroad with a very large luxury hotel group and was hired to develop and run programming in a nightclub for teenagers. Nice. On an island shaped like a palm tree, really not environmentally sustainable. And What I, island was this? It's uh, the Palm Jumeirah okay. in Dubai. So okay. it was right at the launch of this island. So this hotel was being established at the sort of crescent of the island. And then all of these like massive luxury homes were going in in the fronds, so to speak. Fronds in air quotes. You've seen this like archipelago, right, Danny? It's man-made. Kind of. You can see it from space. Wait, but what in your uh, past experiences led you to be a pro at throwing teenage parties? Oh my gosh, (laughs) that's a great question. We should ask the hiring team. I I think 90% of it was just like a willingness and an enthusiasm to go. I, I had done a lot of, you know, like student leadership things. I had lived abroad previously. I was really passionate about living and working internationally. And I think they were like, this girl will work a million hours. <laughs> and that and you're like, I will. And I did. Yeah. And then I left. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How long were you there? Um, I was there for exactly the length of my year contract. Okay. Yeah. Two, like almost to the minute. And you were I like, peace. Like, yeah, yeah. Truly, truly. Did you get burnt out? Yeah, very much so. I hadn't worked too many teenage parties. Uh, you know, is wait, there such a thing, Danny? Uh, is not at that age. <laughs> oh never God. too many. Um, I had never worked for a hospitality group at that scale and at that sort of luxury level, and I really learned a lot. I learned a lot, and I'd never been part of an opening team for a hotel. I mean, it was like a crash course in advanced hospitality. And I learned a lot, but I, like, really didn't take care of myself, and I was really burnt out at the end. Yeah. Yeah. How were the, like, how was the clientele? How are the people you worked with? Exactly how you imagine. (laughs) (laughs) All the things you might be imagining, that those are true. I mean, it was a really international clientele, which was very interesting. And the hotels in Dubai function as these, like, really just kind of, safe spaces for like depravity and all the things that actually aren't allowed under Muslim law. Mm. And so you have this influx of people, both local and international who are like looking to get ripped and drop a bunch of money and just like live really lavish 
and kind of like how Vegas operates in this country. Yes, but turned up, yeah, right? Like a what happens in Dubai stays, stays in, in Dubai. Dubai. Yeah, I read a yeah. book about Dubai, and it, from what I gather, it's that it was built by oil money as an entertainment destination because they saw the dependence on oil waning. Mm-hmm. And it was like, so now we need like indoor ski parks and stuff, and like all this over the top Vegas style entertainment. So yeah. I assume that's this is an extension of that, and it's pulling yes. people to the desert. Yeah, that's very true. And like, what is it has a really interesting history. So each kind of section of the United Arab Emirates, you have Abu Dhabi, Dubai are the two big ones. You know, Dubai in particular, even pre-oil, really survived on a pearl trade. So oh. they were harvesting hmm. pearls, and it was a pearl destination. Then they kind of saw like, yep, they have some oil resources, but not enough to be significant. And so now they're leveraging this, like, pretty big, um, I mean, tourism is their primary industry. Hmm. So. And then real quick, what is a teenage nightclub like? <laughs> a teenage, well, <laughs> Tim's it, taking was, notes. it was pretty cool, I will I say. I mean, is there, like, a, ma- I, would, I would hope there's, like, a maximum age. Because yes. some people would be like, ooh, teenagers. And you're I like, whoa, know. whoa, slow oh, down, no. bud. That's like a whole different part of <laughs> right. the story, Tim. Oh, um, no. <laughs> so, okay, so the way that it was set up, which is also really hard in an international context because an 18-year-old has much different privileges in the U.S., yeah. let's say, than they do in the U.K. or Australia. So you have this international space. 18 was the limit, so like 12 to 18. And we had a dance floor and a DJ booth and an, a theater and like a tech hub and like hmm. a game room and a mocktail bar. Were these like the kids of the parents visiting the luxury properties? Yes. Okay. So it was like part babysitting. Danny, I'm sure you've been there. Don't, don't act like you know about this place. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Part, part babysitting, part like trap, because you have 18-year-olds who go down to the pub. They've been ordering a beer since they were 15. Yeah, that's weird. And now the rules are that they are going to the kids' club for a mocktail <laughs> and to play video games. <laughs> and then you have young people coming in who are really sheltered, you know, yeah. who really don't have any of those privileges. So bizarre. It was bizarre. This episode is brought to you by Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, a tasty, versatile spirit. Created in Chicago in 2012, the product was born out of a need for a bespoke iteration of the Old Tom style, which is the slightly sweeter predecessor to London Dry. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin carries classic notes of orange peel, juniper, and coriander, while balancing on a subtle floral edge thanks to the addition of osmanthus blossoms. Its elevated proof is suitable in cocktails or unadorned. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, complete your bar. Okay, so your year contract comes to an end. Thanks for the memories. See you later. And then from there, do you go? I'm looking kind of at your um, your list here. Then do you go straight to Vietnam? I don't. So I, like through the course of this work, I just was like looking honestly for anything to latch onto that felt like value oriented and meaningful to me. Like with a lot of other things happening. And I got really into cheese. I don't exactly remember why. I think generally I'm a really process-oriented person. Yeah. And so Are I'm you still into cheese? Super, super into cheese. Shout out to my cheese share from Beautiful Rind. Mm. Um, but I essentially wrote a piece of fan mail to a woman who opened a shop in London. 
and said, I'm really interested, how do I learn? Like, I'm American, I don't really know what our cheese culture is, but how do I learn? And she like gave me all of these spots that would potentially take me on as an apprentice. And I just started going to these different places around the world and working for free, essentially, or in exchange for like room and board. And cheese. And cheese. I ate a lot of cheese. And so I ended up in Vietnam as part of this journey. And there happens to be a Belgian cheesemaker who moved to Vietnam to cater to like French colonial hold, holdover yeah, type restaurants. Yeah, there's not a lot of dairy in that, no. in that culture yeah. or cuisine. No, but I don't know how he did it. He was able to manage a herd of goats and was huh. raising goats in this rainforest and was really open about his techniques. Cheesemaking is very proprietary. Not a lot of people want to mm. tell you how it's done. Huh. And he was very down to tell me how he made All right, Chris, cheese. spill the beans. How do you make it? I can't. I can't really? now. I, don't, what, I mean, I don't I guess know if he's what, changed his mind. Yeah, what types of <laughs> what types of things are proprietary? The entire the entire process? Or is there like one specific part of the process where it's like, this is what we don't share? Mm, such a good question. It depends on the tradition. Okay. You know, I think the more the older the tradition tradition the more variables that become proprietary okay. can you walk us through like a very basic cheese making that is yeah what's the formula yeah. yeah yeah so you know you start with really i would say you start with whatever your animal is eating because mm. that's going to influ- influence like the fat contact con- content the flavors um for example if your goats are eating like tropical banana fronds and flowers like you have a a fresh goat's cheese that's really unique very different than what you would get in like belgium or france right but you're you're stylistically you're doing something similar Mm -hmm. so it starts with what the animal eats then it goes to like the time of year that you're milking which will also change the fat content Hmm. then it goes to separating curds from whey then you're introducing some sort of good bacteria that will continue that process. And then you have all of these directions you can take. Kind of like wine, you can go like a more natural avenue where you're just aging in an open air and like, like a wild ferment. Exactly. It's essentially a wild ferment. Or you can really tighten up and control more of the variables to get you to a place or a type of cheese that you want that's very hmm. specific. Like so. using specific yeast strains to yield a certain. Yes, or you can wash your cheese with like, you know, the famous ones are like beer and wine or salt water. You have all of these little kind of design decisions that direct your cheese towards a desired end. So it's pretty cool. And what's the Rolls Royce of cheese? Is there like one (laughs) cheese where it's like if you've got this in your pantry... That's yeah. a real flex. I mean, there are cheeses that are seasonal, just like the best produce that people wait for, right? And like are voracious for that moment. So like the asparagus or, you know, fava bean equivalent, I would say for American cheeses is probably Rush Creek Reserve, which is also a regional cheese. So specific to the Midwest, it's super special. A lot of the um, aging and sort of washing ingredients come from the property. It's a really, really special cheese that's inspired by a very famous French cheese that gets softer and softer and you dip things in it. And it's like wrapped in a particular tree bark. It's, it's really delicious. Where can you get it? 
Uh, you can get it from Beautiful Rind. It comes out around Christmas, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it's a super soft, like, creamy mm-hmm, situation. Mm-hmm. And you buy the whole... It's starting to sell it in halves, but you can get it from all together now. Beautiful Rind. Any, like, respectable cheese purveyor will carry this now. And do you have a preference between, like, the soft cheeses or the aged ones that have, like, some crystallization? Like, what's mm. your situation? Yeah, well, I, I think my, like, favorite food, like, period, is a Parmigiano-Reggiano. And, like, the more aged, the better. Like a six-year, how, how many year? what's I your mean, you sweet can, spot? I mean, you can go to 20, but anything over, like, eight is really good. It gets, like, super pineapple-y and really, like, crystalline. And it is just this, like, umami bomb that is so, so good. Mm. Yeah, I like that style as well. I'm, I like the aged Goudas, like the super aged, you okay. know, bandaged cheddar, always good. Yeah. I mean, there's so many good cheeses out there, right, Tim? That, that's right, Danny. <laughs> I like the uh, Mexican blend, uh, yeah. Sargento. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you take this knowledge from the apprenticeship and you become a cheesemonger. Yeah. What is a cheesemonger <laughs> and, and what was your experience like? Um, so, you know, a monger of any type, you can be a fishmonger too. Mm-hmm. There are like a couple categories of mongers, but, um, I, I... aspire to be a monger of sorts someday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I a couple mean, monger sure. categories. <laughs> I if I can reach monger or mogul version of anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would just have it printed on your business card. Yeah. You can choose your just own Just general title. monger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> um, so I was running out of money. You cannot, turns out, live off of cheese alone. Mm. And so I needed to find a job back in the States that would, like, pay me above board. And so I, you know, based on my response to my fan email, uh, Patricia Mickelson, who is the author and owner of this, you know, beautiful shop in London, she recommended um, Murray's Cheese in the village in New York. And at the time, it really was one of the best examples of like a cheese shop that represented a lot of artisanal and farmstead cheeses, was able to bring in a lot of things that at the time wasn't allowed to be imported into the U.S. because of raw milk rules. And she basically said, like, if you really want to keep learning about this, there's sort of one place you can Mm. go. And so does Murray's do? Is that... um retail as well as wholesale to restaurants and all of the above so what i loved about working there i mean i i loved going to the classroom which is like the through line of all the work like it ends up being this thing that i love talking and teaching about food really truly um so they had a very robust education program where you can take classes on how to make cheese different styles all of that but you could also stand behind the counter and serve like folks coming down the street from Blue Hill, which also factors in later, and really from some of the best restaurants in the world, they would come, taste their cheeses, pick them out to serve on the cheese plate, and that was great. And then you'd also just, you'd have your walk-in customers, too, who were all characters. <laughs> I bet. The cheese community. Yeah, it's quirky. Is it, um, does it get competitive? Because I assume with these aged cheeses, it, you have a finite amount. And you have to get to it early or you're going to miss out. Yes, it does get competitive. But I think there is a certain, at least then, there was a certain echelon of restaurants who were really interested in like fine French cheeses. And those were the harder ones to get. So, mm-hmm. you know, for like Danielle Boulud, or, you know, some of the more kind of 
like aligned restaurants who would have a traditional French cheese plate, they would really get first dibs and some of the stuff wouldn't make it onto like normal retail. Yeah. What were some of the restaurants that were coming to you? Oh my gosh. On the spot. Blue Hill. Yeah. Yeah, Blue Hill was, was the big one. And then, um, 11 Madison would come in quite a bit. They would pick up cheeses fairly often. Um, And did these places have their own cheese people within the a or is it of, the chefs? A lot of times, mostly chefs, mm-hmm. actually. Mostly chefs. Who'd you like dealing with the most? I did love the team at Blue Hill. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they were great. That's a nice transition because you <laughs> eventually worked there. I did eventually work there. Tell us about that. So um, in addition to Blue Hill in the city, there's... Stone Barns. Exactly. Where I proposed to my wife. Oh, beautiful move. What'd she yes. say? Where was it? Was it in the manure shed? Did it you... was in the shed, yeah. <laughs> yes, so... this is the thing. Yeah, so is it really? Oh, oh. yeah. Oh, basically, yeah. it was like a very long back and forth coordination. One of our friends, Nate Otto, made a painting for it. So I'd like send it to them. It was so detailed and... It was, it was pretty sweet. They did a great job with it. It was an incredible When did night. you propose? Was I... It was, was October I... 1st, 2015. Okay. I might have I might have been at the restaurant. Yeah. I have to go back in time, but... It's pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah, well, it was really sweet. It's a beautiful place. Perfect for a proposal. I hope that's still going well. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> Things still going are good. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, so I, I spent some time at, at Stone Barns, and I rotated through the farm in front of house, and that was a different kind of education. And Dan was in the midst of writing the third plate, and so, you know, unbeknownst to me, when I moved into that position, I think that year of people who were kind of moving between front of house and the farm got the benefit of, like, Dan just trying out material and mm. bringing in sort of an extra amount of experts into the restaurant to really educate staff and integrate that into the book. So I really got the benefit of, you know, a lot of unpacking like Wendell Berry and like agrarian philosophy that Dan was trying to translate to the plate. Yeah. Um, So how long were you there for? A year and a half. Okay. So it's a Pretty specific program. It's nine months, and then I stayed a little bit longer. What was the nine-month program? Uh, so the nine-month is a rotation between all parts of the farm and then front of house. Oh, cool. And then when you stayed on, what were you doing then? Front of house. Okay. Yeah. So I was on the... So I worked... You know, they have very specific positions, but I never moved to, like, a SOM designation, but I was always kind of some aspect of service. And we don't have to get into this if you don't want to, but obviously a lot has come out uh, kind of recent, recent-ish, recent a couple of years ago, a year ago, um, about the restaurant, maybe how Dan ran it. Do you have any, you know, kind of insight there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like they could have even been harder. <laughs> like, I mean, quite frankly, I read it and I was like, well, all right, well, I guess that's what's coming out. I mean, it's it's a really intense, high-pressure environment. And I think that there are... I think there's a really big question about, like, can you run a kitchen with the same kind of rigor and integrity and precision without it tipping over into this really toxic space Mm -hmm. that, you know, constantly reestablishes hierarchies and is essentially fear-based? And I... 
don't know. I don't know. Did that seem to be like how your interactions with the hierarchy were kind of like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one sort of semi-typical interaction is like we'd created this dish around the eggs coming from the farm. They're these beautiful, like super vibrant, colorful yolks. The yolk was really lightly processed. And then to like make it impossible, we we had these tiny paper thin crackers, like the tiniest breath would move them. And we balanced it on the edge of a bowl with the perfectly intact egg yolk in the bottom of the bowl. And then you needed to get those to, to the a table, table yeah. you know, without breaking the yolk. And of course it was a total disaster and the kitchen was getting stressed. We were like getting backed up and the chef de cuisine at the time, I'm taking the bowl out and he says, if you drop that cracker, I will slit your fucking throat. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's a high stakes egg walk. High stakes wow. egg walk. Did oh you do it? Were you successful? I probably, I don't know. I well, mean, you're I, here I, to I, tell the story. <laughs> oh my god! You know, blocked it from memory, whatever oh happened god. next. I think some, you know, this all could be cut, but some important context for the listener, like, why would we cut it? Like, what is the, like, you just don't want to kind of speak badly of an experience that you gained things from or like... Yeah, I like love we're not, that question. We don't, yeah. We're not trying to force anything. We're happy to cut it. I think it's just interesting for anyone to hear the process of why we would cut or how. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that question. I think for me, I guess my thought is like, maybe you don't want the F-bomb in, your, in an episode. Oh, no, we don't. Oh, you haven't listened that. to enough episodes. <laughs> okay, great, great, great. Um, I Then in that case, like, I think it can be said, although I'm not sure that it's adding anything more to the conversation right now. Yeah. Right? I think that the big question is how to establish different types of norms and get the same quality results. Yeah. Right. I have this, I mean, you know, we always use like Whiplash as an example in our house or whatever, that film. Mm-hmm. And I just think that ultimately... I mean, this could be unpopular, I guess, but maybe just some people respond to stuff like that and some people don't. And some people are motivated by stuff like that and some people aren't. Like, I don't know if there are general rules that apply to everyone. Yeah, it's tough to, when you can't argue with the results, like, I don't know, like famously low wages in in fine dining. It's like these people, yeah, they pay their dues. They're not making any money. It's maybe a toxic thing, but then they go on to open their own restaurant or receive their own accolades. But it's like how, yeah, exactly. Like like you said, how can you get these results without the toxicity? Yeah. And it's like your true apprenticeships where like you were given room and board and no money. You obviously seemingly appreciated those experiences and grew from them. And then it's like, once you don't call it an apprenticeship and you're paying some money, then it's like, Where's the line? You're and not you did stay on twice as long as the apprenticeship, or, or was it was it an apprenticeship? Yeah, that, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think those are great questions. I do think that there is a culture shift and yeah, sort of a, sure. a collective mentality that mm-hmm. isn't. You know, I was fine with those experiences, and I felt like I could absorb whatever kind of low to the ground living that those required of me. But I wouldn't expect that or demand that anyone else needs to do that to Mm -hmm. really learn the trade. I think that there was something really special in, and there was like other types of reciprocity for me that made it worth it. I do think culture 
is changing. And I think young people are expecting a different environment. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen that as well. Um, in or at least transparency, where it's like people know what they're signing up for, mm-hmm. hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, I think because some people can handle that. Not that they should. Yeah, I guess the point but, is like, some people have us, thicker skin. Yeah, yeah, none of us should have to handle it. I guess is yeah. the point. Uh, one thing that I will <clears throat> say that I actually like working for both Dan and Elena Reagan mm-hmm. of Elizabeth. One thing that I think was really interesting because it's not all bad, right? Are these complex people who had, in varying degrees of success, managing their own individual anxiety and stress and keeping that from creating a toxic environment? Sure, there were things they did well and there were things that they really didn't. But what I will say that happened in both of those places is that they both were playing with the idea of what a dining experience could be and what a work environment could be, and that the people at the restaurant at every level were actually pretty involved in that process. Mm -hmm. And I think that is super interesting, and I think we can be asking those same questions. And for me, right now, it's school food. So all of this comes, thank you, all of this comes to the point of, like, how can we ask that same question with how we feed kids in public schools? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a conversation Danny and I have a lot. Is like <clears throat> being intentional about ingredients, but keeping it feasible to a business. Like, yeah, you can use the very best ingredients at every single step, but are you going to be able to sell a $40 dish? So how, how do you um, consult on balancing that? Mm-hmm. Are there certain, like, I, I just don't know how, how that works. Or, or what does that conversation look like? Yeah, I think it is very complex and there has to be a rebalancing somewhere in that line you know and it's going to have to be financial and maybe you know personally I would say you like assess the person who's making the money at the top of the operation and maybe there's a redistribution of wealth Mm -hmm. uh, to compensate for some of those other things that's what I personally think and I think that's pretty categorically like what needs to happen like broadly yeah in every industry in every industry every industry yeah we're coming for your money (laughs) (laughs) we're coming for you um okay so you've you've worked a lot at the intersection of farming um production sourcing and hospitality both front of house and have you done any was there any back of house stuff really never in the kitchen um more on the growing side so i think i yeah, it's back of house. Yeah, yeah, but mm-hmm. I guess you would say, and I've, um, yeah. I don't know, I've always had an affinity, like I've always really loved back of house operations, and that's usually who my people have been in the restaurant, which is probably why I refocused on like the production side and the farm side. I don't think I can hang in the kitchen. I do mm-hmm. not do well under that type of pressure, but I can grow a bunch of beautiful food, and I can really like talk shop with the people who who handle it and prepare it, ideate around it who it matters to. So so that side of the business seemed to resonate more with you. At what point do you decide to go back to school to, to learn more in that realm? Yeah, so I, I really didn't think I would go back to school because I was having like such rich generative experiences just showing up to different places. But what ended up happening was um, as I got closer to the production and like land stewardship, side of things, I really 
had more and more opportunity to teach around how to garden, how to grow, why it matters, you know, how that looks in a, an urban or peri-urban context. And the questions I was having were about like education and less so about the production and the food focused part of it. So I really wanted to understand really essentially how people process information and how you change and adapt habits and behaviors. And that was like the education piece. And I wasn't able to ask those questions or have those conversations when like money was on the line, right? There are very few jobs that are like, sure, let's sit down and unpack the, you know, philosophical. It needs to be a shift in philosophy. Totally. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I got to gotta go to school okay and you studied human development and learning tell us about that yeah so um she won't tell you but she went to harvard graduate school of education it's fancy school but it seems like was that like actually in harvard illinois tim you might have heard of it i know know it intimately um (laughs) but was this like the only like is it is it a progressive like this seems like a very novel thing to study. Mm-hmm. Is this the only place it's happening? I think Harvard has an especially interesting structure. You know, a lot of um, education programs at the graduate level are teaching and preparing people for administration or district positions or classroom positions. And those programs are obviously super important. But this program at Harvard is especially aligned to people who aren't classroom teachers. Like I'm, I'm not a classroom teacher. I'm not an administrator. I didn't intend to be any of those things. And I'm not particularly interested, like not my strength. Other people are great at it. And I wanted to talk about ideas and structures and how we treat sort of every moment, like an educational moment. And so this program also has a really strong uh, social justice focus because there are a lot of systemic issues that affect how we learn, too. So the, Harvard really is, this was the best program I could yeah. find. Which brings me to this question. Like, what are the hurdles you face when you're trying to shift the paradigm or, like, go back to, like, some of these fundamental things that have been in place for a long time and seem to be getting worse as time goes on? How, how do you get back to a point where things can be reversed, better systems can be put in place, and what are the hurdles you're met with mm-hmm. on that path? Is it money? Is it that it's expensive? Yeah. Is that is that the main thing? What Um I think I think partly it's the money and part of it is that we can't go back. You know, it's I think what one of the things that I've learned is that it's really hard to go back. The systems are in place. Things are moving forward no matter what's happening at the school level. You have to serve kids food every single day. And it's more and more kids every year. And it's more and more kids, and we cannot deny, and it's been this way for years, decades, you know, starting with the Black Panther Party serving free breakfast to their community members, to young people in their communities, because they saw there was a food insecurity issue, and it wasn't being addressed at the sort of larger levels of government that schools play a role in food security. Schools are an essential part of child nutrition, and we cannot, we can't deny it. We Mm -hmm. saw it through the height of pandemic and quarantine. Families rely on that school food to make sure their kids sometimes are fed at all. And so recognizing that and moving forward, 
it's really first, of course, food is not cheap and should not be cheap. So how do we change the structures around improving the quality of that food? Does it take a hands-on approach? Does it have to be vertical integration? I think, so this is the pilot piece. So what we're doing at Academy for Global Citizenship is looking at a plant-forward school food menu that relies heavily on a value-based procurement system. So that's relationship building, that's complicating the systems, right? And to me, when you're talking about vertical integration or hands-on approach, I think complexity is one of the first things that we have to accept as part of the system. And I know for efficiencies, like that's not how we normally <laughs> yeah, operate. Yeah. Right? We have an entirely different system based on something that's about simplification, but that's not how you get an affordable, high quality product that's also culturally resonant for the community that you serve and minimizes your institutional environmental impact, right? And to me, that's another piece of the question is that individual accountability is important. But if we're really going to change things, we have to do it at these broad reaching institutional levels. We serve 2000 meals a week. If we change one piece of where we get the ingredients for those, that's 2000 opportunities for impact. Like that is quite frankly going to make a much bigger difference than my, my monthly CSA share. I love my monthly CSA <laughs> but like, we're going to think a little bit bigger. Would you like to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the monthly CSA <laughs> share? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I mentioned my cheese share, but it's also been really fun. Both my partner and I are kind of moving out of um, yearly production, right? We've both been farmers and like, this will be one of the first years where one or both of us hasn't been working like directly in a farm production capacity. And so it was really fun to research farms and look at who we might invest in. Like CSA, first and foremost, is an investment in a farmer and saying like, you believe in what they're doing, you're going to support it monetarily and come what may. So what I love about Wild Trillium and what I think, I don't know, I'm curious about your guys' feeling about this. When I'm investing in like a CSA or a cheese share, I'm doing it because I'm looking for like not a basic level of product. And yeah. I think different businesses take a different approach. Like you can build a monthly share on like the lowest common denominator and like just give what's simple and straightforward and expected. Or you can recognize that someone's investing in you and like, give them the weird stuff and challenging <laughs> stuff. And Wild Trillium kind of puts that forward. Yeah, it's like, I would like the weird challenging stuff. I yeah, think. yeah, that's what I want to do. Like, I don't have the time anymore to be like, what's the funkiest cheese you have on the menu? Like, I would love to do that, but I just wanted to kind of show up in a goodie bag and I want to read about it and I want to enjoy it. How and are like, you eating it? It depends on the cheese, depends on the cheese. But, you know, Wild Trillium, they specifically say that they have like a mystery item for every pickup and it could be anything. It could be edible flowers that, you know, I'm really hoping that they'll like throw a couple of curveballs and I'll have to be like stinging nettles again. Damn it. <laughs> you know, like I'm fine with that. I'm interested yeah. in that. So if somebody's interested in joining Wild Trillium, what does that process look like? So easy go to the internet, go to their website. They have a couple of um, city pickups that are, you know, pretty accessible. Like mine is at Big Bud. So I'm like, 
you know, I'm like, great, I'll go have a cocktail, I'll pick up my vegetables. Like, it's great. It's a ritual for me. So, you know, check out a farm CSA. Green City Market has a great listing of farmers with CSAs. So. And I realize now that we never really talked about, like, what sparked your, like, interest in all of this like from a young age when you were a kid were Mm. you into like gardening and farming and were you an adventurous vegetable eater cheese eater i wish but for everyone who's like oh you know she grew up on a farm or something and it's too late for me i really did not know how to cook a thing and had no interest or thought to quality ingredients till really um maybe after college And maybe truly not until I started the cheese apprenticeships. I really grew up like, you know, I remember like WIC coupons and like discount bin cereals and a lot of processed foods. And my grandmother Mm. did have a garden, but it it really wasn't a big part of like my developmental growth. Yeah, I like learned through great meals. And then eventually I was like, what makes this so good? And that's kind of where it started. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock, ready-to-wear options, or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. It is gardening season. (laughs) I've been tapping you for information for over a year for our garden. I thank you. I want to thank you in a public forum. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you helped set them up, right? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you guys are doing all the heavy lifting, but... No, just the soil bags and stuff like that, like literal heavy lifting. Not contaminated. Not contaminated. Um, But we're lucky because we have access. My dad lives in the country, and we have access to land where we can plant stuff. What about people who live in the city who who are like, well, I don't have a backyard. I don't have a rooftop. How can these people get involved in planting and agriculture? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start with sort of maybe an atypical suggestion because I understand what's realistic. I think what happens is so many people are like, great, I'll start a plant in a pot. And that one plant doesn't go well. And they're like, see, told you. Like, I'm doomed. This whole project is doomed. What I would say is learn what you can forage safely right in the city. And there's a lot, actually. Like, within a few blocks of my apartment in Humboldt Park in Ukrainian Village, there are two apple trees multiple mulberry trees there's Mm. a family that grows corn in their like front little lot like start walking and noticing you can eat like the violets that pop up all over the place you know try to pick stuff that's like not adjacent to a major road (laughs) where you're just getting a bunch of like debris like use some common sense around it but maybe start by just looking at what foods are edible and delectable because sometimes they're edible but not tasty And just see what you can identify in your community. Like, first and foremost, you have to plant a thing. The next thing you could do is, like, look for community resource volunteer days, right? Like, you don't even need a community plot. You can show up and move some dirt and, like, build a relationship and get the benefits of, like, a wonderful retired teacher or something who's, like, 
work in our in our garden like three hours a day, right? So think about those entry points and then start with a pot. You could totally start with a pot and see how that goes or like build a garden bed if you get some space. Like there are lots of levels. And is there a good resource for urban foraging? Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. In my but, mind, I'm like, oh, there's got to be like a map situation where it's like, oh, this is it. Because there's also like, you don't want to be trespassing or like picking stuff off people's geocaching, but for, for stuff yeah. you can eat. Yeah. Hey, maybe we could do that. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe a listener Tim has a suggestion. Into that for a time. I did go through a geocaching phase. <laughs> Much, so no, no one else climbed aboard <laughs> that train that? with me. I, it was I, exciting I for maybe a like. Oh, God, maybe like seven or eight years yeah. ago. Okay. You took us well, to one of them. There, there's a lot of secrets right under yeah. your nose there that you don't know about. And they lead cool. you to really cool uh, destinations. And better if they're edible. So maybe this is like... <laughs> this would be very yeah, cool. If you had geocaching <laughs> for like edible things, that'd yeah. be pretty I think sweet. we just developed really cool. a new app. Wow. I think so, too. Well, anyway, listeners, let us know if you have a resource. I kind of cheated because I sort of knew some things that I could forage, and then I started noticing them around the city. Yeah. But if you have to start with the, like, learning piece, do that. All right. And Chris was kind enough to bring us gifts today. The Shotgun Conservationist, written by a mutual friend, Brant McDuff. This book looks at, it, well, the subheading is Why Environmentalists Should Love Hunting, and I, apparently not all hunting is bad. There's a sustainable way to do it. Would you like to talk to that a little bit? I would love to. So um excited about this book for a few reasons. Tim, you mentioned mutual friend, definitely. But I think that this is a really compelling, nuanced perspective around how we protect wild spaces. So that is really the underlying message of the book is how do we preserve wild space across the country and the way that we're doing it right now is through the funds generated by hunters. There is literally no other system. And so conservationists who are interested in maintaining those wildlands and biodiversity need to be talking to hunters and really understanding the kind of ecology around hunting licenses and that those things are developed in tandem with biologists who are monitoring the amount of animals you know, in a particular given area, because there's like a load carrying capacity mm -hmm. in these national forests. It's not just like endless amounts of deer can be there. And that's good news. So I learned a ton about that. And I think um, it also changes the way you think about meat. Like I eat all the things. And I went from vegetarian to an omnivore because I met farmers who like really care for their animals. And so though I I will not be a hunter. I'm not interested in hunting. I'm interested in game meat, and I'm more open-minded, for sure, about yeah. why that matters. So I think it's a it's a fresh take. Would you eat a random burger? <laughs> I do. It's a great question. I do on occasion. <laughs> I will say, I do. I do. But you try. You just try to be more conscious. Of it. And I think I'm actually, after this book, I have, like, a renewed commitment to myself to be really I, I have a burger ritual which is to go to rootstock order their burger yeah. side of fries just there yesterday and a very particular glass of wine that they always have on for the burger and I what's love the that. wine I don't I don't know I always just oh, say like my usual yeah can you guys is it a red <laughs> it is a red yeah okay. yeah um nice and I don't want to let that go yeah so. can't let that go um speaking of a funny resource 
have you ever seen this guy creative explained on instagram he's like this very kind of obnoxious but he teaches a lot about what you can plant and what not to throw away and it's like he has a very aggressive way of teaching i'll definitely share it with you when we're offline but it's it's pretty funny this guy's name is creative explained i think i've sent it to you before Possibly. You send me about 40 things a day on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> okay, send it Let's to make me. it 41. Yeah. yeah. Um, so have you yeah. noticed uh, the in the effort to improve school food, has the hospitality industry gotten involved? I know there are things like Pilot Light. Mm. What uh, is this? Are we in favor of the? Are they doing the right things? What could they do more? What's the relationship like there? And are you working with chefs in the community? Yeah. So I, I understand there's... A labor shortage. <laughs> really, hospitality is struggling. So are school food and food service management companies, which are really the entities that tend to run most large district food programs. What I would say is that, you know, in my experience and what I witnessed, observed, heard a lot of feedback about is that you have this new type of aspiring chef who's going into these pretty rigorous, ambitious kitchens. And they also have perhaps a certain level of privilege or expectation about where their work is going to lead them. And there isn't a clear pathway in a lot of restaurant kitchens for that. Increased wages, benefits, reasonable schedules. If you want to have a family, those are big challenges. And so so what I would say is that there is this awesome opportunity within school food to take, you know, if you want to see the way the food you make impacts the diner, if you want reasonable hours, if you want benefits, if you want a trajectory where you could end up as like, you know, a corporate head chef or, you know, working in one of these food service management companies, we need that vision. We need that vision. And we also need people who respect and understand a rigorous kitchen and can implement that at the school level and really take pride in the food that they're making for kids. Who are these food service companies that you think are doing a great job? None of them. Oh. <laughs> literally, <laughs> bow, 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 bow. Yeah, literally none of them, All right. but we are working on it. And I think, again, it's going to take all of us to hold these companies to account, but they're for-profit entities. They have the money to pay people. We just have to demand that they serve better food. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. We need some lobbyists to talk to the corporations. That's right. And what could we be doing as individuals or the people listening to kind of make the, the food you know, environment, other than writing our senators better. (laughs) Yeah. Other than writing your senators, I think, I think for most people, just like learn about what's served in your kitchen cafe or in your school cafeteria. So, you know, if you have kids or nephews or, you know, in whatever capacity, just first understand what the food looks like. You might be surprised. And then also understand who's running that food program. And I think if you work in the hospitality industry, look at these food service management companies and apply to work there like it was so interesting i i just joined the illinois school nutrition 
network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a bunch of food service professionals. And never in my life, I'm just registering for a conference, right? I'm prompted three times to let them know if I'm going to retire soon. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like that might be an indication of like who's working there right now. Well, are you? I mean, if I can, absolutely. I love my work, but if it's between work that I love and no work at all, I would definitely go no work at all. Just (laughs) just exist. Um, Just be. Just be, just be. But short of that, get involved with these food service management companies. Bring fresh ideas and energy, especially if you care about the origin of food. Yeah, I saw a post come across my Instagram feed that had like, from images me. of not from you <laughs> maybe uh but it had images of like public school f- meals from around the world and it was really depressing we for for better. americans it was depressing yeah, but everywhere else us, it yeah, looked pretty friend, sweet i remember in that there's like a michael moore documentary about food and or mm-hmm. something because i remember the french cafeteria scenes it was like they got multiple types of cheese it was like this incredible meal we can do better very gourmet your school now it's new it's proving that stuff can be done, what would you like the result or the impact of this program to be 25 years from now? Such a big question. I really want to change school food. I want, so what I have learned is that we have an issue supporting small to medium-sized, particularly family-run farms that are diversified, that see themselves as stewards of the land. People are opting out of that work because it's not livable and it doesn't pay a livable wage and they're having to compete with these, you know, the consolidation of food, right? So we have these producers who need a customer, big customers, and then we have this shitty food system that thousands, millions of families are relying on in our country to feed their kids food every single day. And the ingredients suck. We're suffering from supply chain issues. They can't even get the ingredients for sucky food. What if we just connected those? And it's not a just. It's a really complicated, convoluted system. Mm -hmm. But there's an opportunity to really build up and address both problems. And kids will eat better, right? And this is not a novel idea. You're hard-pressed to find someone in a school who's like, do you wish your kids ate really good food? Right. Like no one's going to say no, but it's a scary problem to tackle and it's really complicated. And there's a lot of people who will tell you why it won't work, but I see that there are definitely ways to work it. It's not going to change tomorrow, but in 25 years, we could literally be serving better public school food and propping up farmers who really care about the land and animals that they are stewards of. Why would we not pursue that? Yeah. And you're educating people at a young age on eating right, which will solve another host of issues with health, a broken healthcare system. It's, yeah, it, it would, it's an it ecosystem. could spark. It's exactly. A web. Everything is connected. Yeah. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Bronca USA. Question, Danny. What's your question, Tim? My question is, what is in Fernet Branca? What are the ingredients? It's mm, a tough question right there. <laughs> it's a 170-year-old recipe, and it is a closely guarded family secret. Okay. There are 27 distinct components to the recipe, various herbs, botanicals, and spices, and I don't know all of them. Do you know some of them? 
You know, I do know some of them. Okay. We know there's aloe, gentian, chamomile, angelica, chincona, colombo root, iris, saffron, peppermint, myrrh, and Chinese rhubarb. Okay. But if you want to find out all of the ingredients, you're going to have to go to one person. There's one person who knows? That's right. Count Branca. Count Branca. That's a real person you can That's a real person. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess we got to get him on the pod. I guess so. All right. Well, back to the pod. Chris, what is your death row meal? Well, my, I'm a little bit prepared for this, but my first question mm-hmm. is, how much will they give me? As much as you want. It's your last <laughs> Yeah. Okay, great. So I <laughs> definitely have a Japanese breakfast, which is like a grilled fish and some rice and miso and usually like an egg thing. An okonomiyaki plate, so with like the really good, like funky cured fish. Then I would also have, I don't know what it's called, shamefully, but I've had this like espresso version that's served over a custard. Hmm. So it's espresso over custard. Not like an affogato, but something like that. Yeah, like an Asian custard Hmm. affogato. Is it chilled? No, it's hot. Hot, hot. And then I would have a cold Sapporo. Wow, that was a full-on Asian-themed last meal. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I love it. It's my favorite. That's a great answer. Unique. All right. What is the biggest flex crop? What is like if you, I think I asked you this last year maybe, but I was like, if, if you really want to show off, like I always think of the movie Dennis oh, the yeah. Menace right, came out when we were kids and like <laughs> Mr. Wilson has like the 40-year-old plant that blooms once and oh, then dies. yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> is, right. Is there a real version of that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. The Walter there... Matthau one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so funny. There is. Still have nightmares about that, like, the random villain in that. It's Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Classic. He's always, he's a great villain. Yeah. In so many contexts. Um, Okay. A really good flex crop. Uh, This is an unsatisfying answer, but it depends on your region. Like something. In the Midwest. In the Midwest. Yeah. Okay. I think, like, a really hot chili like mm. even like a ghost pepper or something okay. like the more kind of um concentrated yeah concentrated and we have a really short growing season hmm. so it's hard to get those like really delicious or also like pawpaws you see them they were once like you know they're native here but they yeah. take a long time hopalog makes a pawpaw liqueur uh, that's right dreamy yeah. dreamy yeah. i love the pawpaw yeah okay we gotta get some ghost peppers yeah all right. Um, I was thinking of the Homer Simpson, the one he eats and hallucinates in the desert. Yeah, of yeah. course. We got to get those going. I in love the, that yeah, That's a great episode. <laughs> All right. What's your favorite hidden gem restaurant? Okay. My favorite hidden gem restaurant, I would say it is a food truck um, in the parking lot of a banquet call hall called Los Amantes. And it's at like Cicero and 47th. And their quesabiria with the consomme is awesome. If you can remember to bring like a high life with you or something, that is my very, very favorite. It's the consomme is a little bit different than Bidia Zaragoza. It's like not as like spiced and rich. It's a different thing, hmm. but it is so tasty. And like, that's my flex. Like if I'm wooing you, I'm going to take you and we're going to have a cold beer in this parking lot and we're going to eat quesabidia 
Great. I'll bring and the high lives. Yeah. Perfect. That sounds great. And that has not come up. No, that, is, that does that's certainly a new not. One. It's <laughs> called Boom Taco, and they are awesome. Boom Taco. Mm. Ba boom. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite fast food? My favorite fast food, I really love food at the baseball stadium. Oh, okay. Nice. Like just any anything. Any stadium? And it's so, it is overpriced, but it's like the whole thing. I yeah. like doing a couple laps and it's like trying to figure For out sure. yeah. like what's Planning the it. thing that is most delicious at a reasonable price point. Like I love that you can dress your own dog at Wrigley Stadium. I also love this um, garlic shoestring french fries at Yankee Stadium. Mm. Like there are a few standouts, but just generally food at baseball games. Yeah, that's a nice trend is that restaurant or sorry uh stadiums are more intentional about their offerings and bringing restaurants from the community in Mm -hmm. so yeah we've talked about it you know get like rainbow cone down at uh yeah sox stadium it's so satisfying yeah it's like you're having a great time you're watching a game and like the food is delicious yeah now the games are shorter you can't eat as much (laughs) it's a shame (laughs) um are actually on the topic of fast food is there a fast food chain that is more intentional than others with sourcing ingredients. You know, Culver's is pretty good. I would imagine. Yeah. Col- <laughs> oh, yeah. But someone here is like a little Culver bias. Yeah. A lot Culver. I, well, no, I, that, I enjoy that's Culver's. part of it is the quality is I enjoy amazing. Culver's. Yeah, yeah, the dairy, they use really good dairy. Wisconsin based company. Exactly. They need to for that frozen custard. And it's delicious. And it, it, is. it shows. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm not being paid on the side to endorse yeah. Culver's. We're going to get him as true. a sponsor. Don't yeah. worry. Oh, we need to. Amazing. Chris, what's your favorite cocktail? Oh, my favorite cocktail. Well, I love mezcal as a spirit, and I love mezcal neat. And it, part of why I love it so much is it's really more of an agricultural product. To me, it like is more aligned with like wine, and it's a reflection of you know, either cultivating agave or harvesting wild agaves. Super interesting. But I also love a chilled, dirty martini. Mm-hmm. So good. Or a perfect Manhattan. Okay. okay. I would imagine you've crossed paths with uh, Lou Bank, with Sacred. Mm-hmm. Pro- maybe. I don't know. Oh. Yeah, it'd be a good hang. We, we ought go to get some yeah. quesadilla together. Yeah, we Bring ought to link you two if not. Uh, all right. What trivia category would you dominate? Not an obvious one, though. Not an obvious one. Well, good news is there's no obvious category. It's My brain does not work that way. I'm not a great trivia partner. Maybe I could pull my weight in art history. Yeah, so that you was could. Actually, yeah, you that was my could. actual major in yeah. college was art history. So I think I could hold it down. Definitely. Uh, to what do you attribute your success? I think that's still in process. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think. I have a part B for this, too. Okay. All right. Well, I think what I would say has like given me kind of a unique reputation in these areas where I've worked is that I really love puzzling over complex problems. Like I find that really creative. Like that's part of my creative process. And I'm also really committed to like a more humane result, no matter what the work is, right? Like my goal is that every person involved in the process is like having a more humane experience. If it's the diner, if it's the person working in dish seven days a week, that there's something that's happening that is increasing their sense of like fulfillment in the work. And I really, really, really care about that. 
an altruistic outlook. Oh. The Lake Forest crew, who did you think was going to be the most successful? Uh. <laughs> most likely to succeed. Yeah. We didn't have superlatives at uh, Lake Forest no, College. No, no, but, but it just would in be your fun mind. to go backwards. I was most that likely now. to fail, probably. <laughs> Not true. Or who has exceeded their natural talent more than anyone else? Yeah. Well, I what I will say that's a perfect that's a perfect follow up because the author of our book, the shotgun conservationist here, Brant McDuff, cannot spell to save his life. Like has literally no comprehension of the construction the of words. <laughs> really great editor. That editor. Wow. Whoever. <laughs> you are out there i <laughs> hope you haven't quit um so shocking that he not only wrote an entire book but that it's really good all right wow that's a good answer so a good spelling answer. is not an obstacle people that's yeah. what we've learned today that's right but yeah. math is a huge obstacle so you got to figure out the <laughs> numbers figure that out. um what is something that bars or restaurants do that might annoy you <sighs> i have a really specific one for good. this and obviously, it's not appropriate all the time, but I really don't like when, like, a sit-down restaurant does not pace my food. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there are lots of weird things that we do as part of fine dining that are, like, totally made up and absurd. But pacing food is something we should all learn from, and it bums me out so much when I'm at a nice place. I'm, like, loving the ambiance, the music, everything's right, and then everything comes at once, and I have a thing that is both melting and getting colder, and you have to decide, and then the meal is rushed. Ugh, I hate it. I totally agree, and kind of in that same vein, I don't like ordering everything at once. Yeah. And I, I understand that, might that it's easy solution. on the kitchen yeah. mm -hmm. to, to do that, and they're like, well, so we can pace it out for you. You, it's generally not paced out properly. <laughs> yeah. And also, I like to kind of order as I go. Because yes. you're very hungry when you sit down, and you tend to over-order or not order smart yep yep and so. you're like thinking about you know what are the flavors the textures like mm -hmm. how you're satiated like sometimes you don't know right away if you've yeah. first time diner you know or you don't hard. know if you're at, in a couple a couple courses in you're like oh i know it would pair great with this or you follow this up with this yeah so. yeah that's my but, great. I, but i do get the uh restaurant side of that too all right and then here's our last question what is the best thing about chicago's dining scene hmm. i I really like that people are using their spaces to prop up small projects. So I think, for example, a great example, a really good example was Elizabeth run by Elena Reagan, which is now no more. You know, she would offer up the two days a week to like a side project where someone could host basically use their like proof of concept and serve dinners and have pop-ups and i love that that like happens a lot across chicago i love that there's space for people to just try a passion project i think that's really cool and i think that keeps food interesting i think that keeps the food scene really dynamic yeah did it have any of those um little projects blossomed into full brick and mortars are there any restaurants that started mm -hmm. out in the elizabeth kitchen you know, not off the top of my head. I'm sure they're out there. I know people have gone on to, like, start. 
I think Derek might have been a guest on the show, um, but work in like beverage industry, open up a wine store. Derek was the sommelier for a long time. Oh, Derek Westbrook. Yep, Derek. He hasn't been on yet. Oh, We're going to get him. Okay, great, great. So Der- <laughs> Derek Westbrook went on to start his own wine shop and multiple other things we'll talk about on the show. And then there are other people who are leading kitchens now that definitely like their vision a part, as part of their pop-up is like kind of driving that philosophy. So there are a few folks. And, and Elena started by making like pierogi in the market, right? So she wasn't popping up in someone else's space, but she was still like popping up. Yeah. So yeah. That was huge for her. Yeah. All right. That was the last question. Chris Delatore, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. And that concludes our conversation with Chris De La Torre. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to check us out at Joiner's Pod on Instagram for throwback photos, cocktail recipes, sometimes reels. And once again, this episode was produced by Matt Haddock, music by Captain Cuts, and video content by Joe Guzzo III. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 